You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now, as is our custom, to join us. Uh, so we're going to open the Bible together, and this is, this is for us uh, the, the, the motivation of our even gathering here, that God would speak to us. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or a smartphone or some device that will get you one, then I'll draw your attention to a, paper bla- a, pa- a paperback Bible that will be in the tray of the chair in front of you as well. We would love to make that our gift to you if you don't own a Bible Please take it. You can't steal it. It's our gift. And uh, in, in addition to that, even if you know someone who doesn't have a Bible, man, make that uh, our gift to them as well. And so we're in the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel literally means good news. The, one of the four Gospels, that is the four good newses of who Jesus is and what he came to do in his life, death, and resurrection. And so well, in, this, in this sense, these are the, the first four books of the New Testament, and Matthew is telling us about who Jesus is and beginning to convince us that who Jesus is and what he's done for us is good news. So he's introduced us to Jesus uh, through his miraculous birth and his, his, his powerful introduction as a speaker, leader, and teacher in the Sermon on the Mount, and then even per, uh, powerful acts of of mercy and miracles that he demonstrates his power all the way up to the point where now, uh, as, as we find ourselves in chapter 11, uh, we're in uh, a, another major, let's say, uh, kind of section of, of this particular gospel. Chapter 11 and 12, however, though, is somber. 11 and 12, Matthew introduces us to people who don't rightly get Jesus. That is, he wants you and I to understand and get Jesus, and, and, and the way he wants to do that is by introducing us to people that don't fully get Jesus. And so Matthew chapter 11 and 12, where we find ourselves today, are, are kind of a list of people who, who don't respond rightly to Jesus. That is, that they might think they see him and understand him, but don't fully get all that Jesus is. Some of that's because Jesus hasn't fully shown himself Uh, Jesus hasn't fully accomplished what he had come to accomplish at this point in the gospel. But either way, it's an invitation for our questions, and it's an invitation for us to begin to see Jesus as he truly is. So we, uh, we, we've taken this, this chapter, chapter 11, in three sections. We're going to be in the last section, beginning in verse 20, all the way uh, to the end of the chapter, which we'll read together, spending most of our time there. I'll try to recap where we've been up to this point. At the very beginning, in the first six verses, this chapter begins with a person who you might think is unlikely along the list of people who don't fully understand Jesus. That is John the Baptist. And other Gospels, and even in this, in this very Gospel, John the Baptist is the one who tells other people who Jesus is. And yet the chapter begins with a question. John the Baptist in prison, reaching out to Jesus, wondering if Jesus really is the one. If Jesus really is the one who's going to accomplish all the things he came to accomplish, satisfying all of the longings that he had. The second section we saw last week is the paradox, again, of how Jesus comes and his kingdom is earth-shattering. It breaks into history. And now we find ourselves with the last paradox of the chapter, of Jesus showing how he is perfect in two paradoxical ways. So we'll read together that first in the first four verses and the last paradox of the chapter beginning in verse 25. So let's read there together beginning in verse 20. Then he, that is Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works 
had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the perfect judge, and Jesus is our perfect rest. Think of our time together wrapped up in two words, Jesus the judge and Jesus the gentle. A paradox for sure. And so as we reflect upon that and how that paradox ultimately this chapter tells us is a source of rest, I want to begin with a question. How well, rest, how well rested are you this morning? I mean, really. What kind of night's sleep did you get last, last night? How well did you sleep? How well rested are you? Are you weary? And here's the deeper question. What if I were to ask not just you and your physical body, what if I were to speak to your soul? How well rested is your soul? Does your soul have bags under its eyes this morning? How well rested are you? How well rested is your soul? Now, it's perfectly possible you don't really know the answer to that, so if you're brave, ask gracious friends. Find someone today to ask, hey, would you consider me a person who is at ease? Or would you consider me someone who is restless? Even in the time that we're sitting here, would you describe yourself as restless or at ease? And ask a gracious friend even the harder question, do you think that I'm a restless soul? Or does it seem like I'm a person who has deep peace 
Because that is the offer and invitation that Jesus concludes this chapter with. Come to me. Come to me, those who are weary. Come to me, those who are worn out. Come to me and find rest. Come to me under all the burdens and commitments that you are striving under. And come to me and find that what I offer is infinitely better. And the paradox that is offered to us is that Jesus gives us great rest by coming to us and introducing himself to us in the first few verses here as a judge, which will seem a paradox like the rest of the chapter, but also that he comes in gentleness. Fully and perfectly judge and fully and perfectly the source of the rest that we need. So in the first few verses, Jesus offers a warning and even I would, I would contend to you a threat. But in the last section, we too see two separate things. One, he explains about himself. We'll, do a, we'll dip into some Christology or theology. That is, who is Christ? Who is Jesus? What is he really? And he also explains about how he brings us to God. And lastly, in the last three verses, he invites us. I would even say he woos us, persuades us and compels us to look to him for rest. So, We'll spend some time reflecting on the first section as Jesus as judge, the first half of this paradox, and then we'll see the last half of this paradox, Jesus the gentle, ultimately offering us an invitation for rest. So, very first verse that we read together was verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities. He began to speak against, to rebuke to publicly criticize, to speak against these cities. What cities? Well, well, it's a callback to what we've already seen. He was going around Galilee, and in fact, he had sent his disciples in a previous chapter out to Galilee to perform mighty works all in his name. And yet, even though he went in compassion and care to these people to do great things, what is he doing here in verse 20? He is denouncing them. And why is it that he denounces them? What is he speaking against? Well, Matthew tells us, because they did not repent. That is that they didn't turn from their previous ways of living and being. That's a a word that we'll, we'll reflect on just briefly here, but it shows itself through the rest of the New Testament. That is, repentance is this existential and spiritual turning away from one thing and to another. We often talk about these things as two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith. That is that to turn away from one thing is necessarily to turn towards something, and they're used interchangeably. For example, the Gospel of John doesn't even use the word repent, but instead emphasizes the word faith, but but does so in such a way that shows that you would turn away from ways of living that are godless, that are self-sufficient, that are sinful and unholy and unrighteous, and turn away from those things to trust in, to, in this case, in this chapter, rest in, hope in Christ as our means of mercy, life, or source of being. And so he says that even though he went around showing great acts of mercy, showing great acts of kindness through setting people free, cleansing them, healing them, raising even people from the dead, people wanted more. They wanted more. Now we'll see this elsewhere. I won't dive too deeply into this, but people still want signs because after all, faith in signs leads to a need for more signs. And that's what these people ultimately wanted. Evidently, they were kind of 
impressed by these things, but like a few verses earlier we saw last week, they were like impetuous children who were simply like, I want more. I don't like that. I want something different. And so Jesus speaks in verse 21, words of woe, a word that you and I don't use hardly ever, I'm sure. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Now, these were towns, predominantly Jewish and Israelite towns, that, that these were, Jesus, Jesus was going to his own people. And yet he compares them to pagan or Gentile towns, Tyre and Sidon. He even compares them to an Old Testament story of Sodom. It says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you, namely the works that we saw referenced in the last few chapters, sending out to perform miracles, casting out demons, healing, raising from the dead. If those people in these Gentile cities had seen what you saw, they would have repented. Repented long ago. And he uses the phrase sackcloth and ashes. That's not how we repent. That's not how we tend to mourn. If you go to a a funeral, you don't wear sackcloth and ashes. You would probably wear black. That's that's the same kind of thing here. The, The a person who would attend a funeral in this case would be in mourning, would be wearing a type of sackcloth, rough garment, not black, but then also have kind of scattered ashes on their face as a sign that they were lamenting or mourning something greatly. And Jesus says and compares them, these unbelieving, unrepentant cities of Israel, God's chosen people, are ultimately in worse shape than the Gentile cities. The Gentile cities, the outsider, even the larger cities. We saw that Galilee is, is, is to some extent rural, right? Jesus starts in the outskirts, starts a movement that isn't in the center of civilization. It, it concludes there in Jerusalem, but he, he starts out in, in, in the rural areas, right? He starts in the flyover states. And so I think I can say in one of those flyover states that, that there's a, a good example here, this kind of rural outskirts versus like the pagan city, because that's what most of you kind of, I mean, even some of you, like the fact that you live in Sioux Falls, you feel like you've betrayed your home, like your hometown, right? The fact that we have a mall is like, this, this is the world's turned upside down, right? And so think about, like, how righteous, how righteous and good-natured do you think of, like, the city of Las Vegas? Like, oh, that's a, man, that's just, oh, that whole city is just full of good people, just the best, salt-of-the-earth kind of people, right? You don't do that, do you? Right, right, when you think about, like, think about the city in your mind that's like, oh, that's the worst. And again, you may be in it. That's fine. That's fine. But like, this is, he's appealing to people who would have that kind of sense about Tyre and Sidon. They would think like, oh, those, that's where it's the worst, right? That's where it's really corrupt. That's where the, the politics of the city are the worst. Like, that, that's the worst, And I want you to conjure up all the kind of self-righteousness you can possibly conjure up for how you think of the most evil group of people you can imagine. Because that's what Jesus is doing. And then he pulls the rug out from underneath you and me. And he said, they're going to be better off than you when the time of judgment comes. You think they're awful. In your mind, you've created a category. There's a scorecard in your head by which you can say those people are really awful. And friend, you will wish you were them when I come back to judge. After all, that's the paradox of this particular 
chapter. The paradox that Jesus is the one, and yet he comes as the one in such a way that confounded John the Baptist and his disciples. They thought John the Baptist was, literally, he was offended, and Jesus says, hey, blessed are those who don't take offense at this, but he was thinking that Jesus was going to come and establish this national kingdom for them. He was going to wipe out in judgment all of these people, in fact, especially the people who had thrown John the Baptist into prison. And he says, no, this kingdom is a paradox. I am the one. I am the one to satisfy all the longings of every heart in existence. But where does he go first? Did you hear it? To the poor, the hopeless, those who are in need. And the paradox, he says that he comes to, greet, to, to, to bring great peace. And yet that peace will come through what? Great earth-shaking violence. Violence that he would even take on himself upon the cross. And in this paradox, we see him inviting us to great comfort, but he does so starting with great judgment. Now we'll get to that, but the Gospels indicate that Jesus performed many of these miracles in this area, and yet the people who should have known, the people who should have recognized these kinds of fulfillments of prophecy were the ones who were hard-hearted, so much so that Jesus says, you would have been better off not knowing. You will have incurred now greater judgment, even though these people weren't particularly antagonistic to Jesus. We don't see them rioting against Jesus, but ultimately, they didn't see the earth-shattering nature of his kingdom and did not turn from their own earthly kingdoms to his. And so as a result, they were going to be worse off than anyone they could imagine. And I want to invite you into the paradox especially maybe if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're not sure, you have deep questions about Christianity, this is probably one of them. And I want to go, go full forward into this. That the judgment of Jesus is good news. That Jesus is judge is good. Now, I think I can illustrate that in a couple of different ways, but they'll, they'll be somewhat provocative, and, and there's a lot going on here. But one of the main reasons we don't like judgment, one of the main reasons we, we cry out regularly for justice because we sense that there is an injustice we see, is because the judgment we know and the justice we see is the judgment and justice of humanity. And so the rulings, the judgments that you and I make are colored and biased by the people themselves. And so we're leery of judgment. And so I get to tell you that Jesus is the perfect judge. You find the judgment of Jesus to be good because he doesn't judge like you and me. He doesn't judge like you do and like I do. We judge in ways that are flawed and selfish. And there are millions of examples, but you can find the examples of our own flawed judgment just by looking around. You can see it in politics at any given moment in a partisan political right divide at any given moment one group of people is really mad when those people do what they deem to be unjust but not really mad when their friends do it the other side is really angry at some perceived injustice that's the worst but not really mad about this other thing at any given moment, you can see it. Now, my goal isn't to just stir up a bunch of cynicism. My goal is that you would see that there is 
a reason why we don't like justice. There is a reason why we don't like judgment because it permeates our heart and, and our best efforts at justice are just that. They approximate justice. Our judgments are, are, the, are at our best day an approximation of righteousness. And again, not to make you cynical, but for you to be realistic. That's why we don't like this. Here's another way to illustrate it, right? Uh, you see this even in yourself, okay? Like when someone cuts you off in traffic, they're the worst. They might be the worst driver ever. Um, but you probably aren't even aware of the people you cut off this morning on the way here. And so you're like, they're the worst! But, I mean, I, for me, it was, it was an honest mistake, right? I just, I mean, I was... Do you get the idea? Like, even in our own hearts, we, we find these ways that we can go like, when they do it, it's awful. It's a personal offense. But when I do it, I'm sorry, my bad. It's not a big deal. I'm only human. Across the board, we, we have these scorecards for the way we judge others. And maybe even uh, another way to illustrate this is like, even the idea of judgment itself sounds awful to you, right? But even that illustrates our own corruptness. Let me, let me, let me illustrate this way. When I say that a person is judgmental, here's the paradox. Any negative emotion that you have towards a person who is judgmental, get ready for it, is you being judgmental, <laughs> right? If I say that person's a bigot, right? Any negative feelings you have towards a person who is a bigot is a bigotry, and so we aren't even capable of this kind of justice. And even our approximation at it ends up, we end up being really mean to the people we don't like and really generous to the people we do. That's what justice looks like. So friend, if you come to the table here and hear the judgment of Jesus and think negatively about it, I want you to know you're seeing it rightly. You're seeing the offense. The fact that there would be someone who we would look to for judgment and trust is amazing. It is nothing short of miraculous. Don't let that fill you with cynicism. Let that fill you with a realism and an awe and a hunger for real justice. In fact, there's even an example in this passage of the way that often our own human injustice plays out. Did you hear it? He compared the way that the people who saw Jesus and his works and rejected him would be better off than Sodom. Now, you've got to go back to the book of Genesis to hear the story of Sodom, but a place that, that God heaped great judgment for the vastness of their sin. Now, again, that, that feels awful, but that's because you're not God, right? That's because if you heaped judgment on a person, it'd be kind of problematic. A holy and righteous God does it better than us, perfectly even. But it still leaves us wondering exactly what's going on. So the example he gives here is Sodom, that, that these Israelite towns who rejected Jesus will be ultimately better or will be worse off even than those in Sodom who rejected God. And this would have been a, a, a powerful picture of great injustice. But, but even then, the way that we typically talk about Sodom, even the way that the Bible talks about the multifaceted and per pervasive nature of sin and injustice is something most people don't even agree on. Let me give you an example. The book of Ezekiel says that ultimately, the sin of Sodom, we hear, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, the prophet Ezekiel says, she and her daughters had pride. So their ultimate sin was pride. It was an excess of food. There were 
gluttonous and greedy. They had a prosperous ease. They were comfortable, and they did not, in all of their prosperity, they did not what? Aid the poor and the needy. Ultimately, they were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Now, here's the catch. When, when you read that list of people who were like greedy, living excessive lives, and didn't care about the poor, half of you in the room, it frustrates. You're mad. You're like, that's right. Heap, heap down the coals of fire, God. But then Jude, speaking to a different context, explains the other part of God's judgment against Sodom. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And now the other half of you are excited about God's judgment. I don't mind painting with very broad brushstrokes here. As we, as we reflect on how our own view of justice is often so biased that, that it causes us to project onto God our own incapacity to, to have righteous judgment, this is a good example. Because often, with broad brushstrokes here, be gracious with me, but I think you'll get the point. Most of the people who are really, really, really fired up about sexual, sexual purity don't really care about the, the poor. And most of the people who are really care, like really fired up about the poor and poverty don't really care about sexual purity. And notice, thank God, that his view of justice is not as partial and biased as ours. Thank God that when he sees the world and what's broken, he sees all of it. So, practically speaking, even as we see here, like, the justice of Jesus as good news, it ought to provoke you. Because the things that you think are really wicked and really evil, Jesus sets a trap and says, yeah, they're going to be better off than you are when I come to judge. Because those who have rejected me, your only means of being reconciled to God, have lost all hope altogether. It seems as if there's an accountability for those of us who have heard of Jesus and rejected him that is greater than those who have not. That is the, uh, the paradox here. That, that here's, I mean, here's the sad part. I, I, this morning, if you have no desire to live for anyone but yourself, you were better off not coming. You were better off not coming to a place where someone would tell you of how, how mighty and just and perfect and gentle Jesus is. Because at least before then, apparently Jesus said you would have an excuse. Well, I didn't know. I'd never seen it, right? I didn't, didn't know. And yet here, here's what we find. When you face this, when you see who Jesus is, what he claims to be, we saw this last week as well, to dismiss him, uh, to walk away casually like an impetuous child, is worse than to reject him altogether. And so, we see a picture here of the justice of Jesus. Jesus is our perfect judge. He provides the perfect righteousness we need. Here's how I'll illustrate it right out of Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 introduces us to the righteousness of God, and it starts on a really low note. They'll sound consistent to what I just kind of reflected on. Romans 3, verse 10. No one is righteous. I know you're like, well, what about? And then, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside, and together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so this judgment over our wickedness and depravity, it will start as an offense. And again, I know that this is like, this this feels awful and wicked, right? This feels like, ah, you shouldn't be saying these things. A friend, I just want to make sure you understand when you're like, are you saying... Are you saying that there's a judgment against all sin and no one is without hope and everyone is worthless because of their sin? No, I'm not saying that at all. Jesus and the Apostle Paul are saying that. I'm not saying that. I don't need that. Let them say that. And as offensive as that begins to be, it introduces us to something powerful. He says that all have sinned in verse 23 and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and why would that be? Why would we even think that's a good thing to say? Because we find that there is now no distinction. There is now no distinction of righteousness for those who have tried to obtain righteousness by their own goodness, even though there is no one who was good. And now those who are righteous, we see, in Christ are united with him, completely united, so that there is now no distinction between what is given to them by perfection and what is attributed to them by faith. They're justified by his grace then as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a payment, a sacrifice to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The reason the justice and judgment of God is good, the reason reason that it is good news that Jesus knows how deep sin goes and knows as a judge how awful and depraved it is, is so that he can perfectly justify us from it. It's good that Jesus is judge because he can impartially fix what's broken in you and me. He won't just fix the stuff that maybe some of your friends think are good and some of them don't, right? He won't just fix half of you. He'll go all, the the very unrighteousness that our sin creates in the world, he will come and fix. It's good news that he is judge. We'll come back to that. Because after all, what follows as an invitation to find rest in him is coming from a person, mind you, who is perfectly just. Now, before I go even any further into that, this is where the paradox starts to emerge, right? If someone invites you over to their house, like to feast with them, that's great, unless that person is a terrorist, right? Come over, hang out with me. That's great, unless that person is wicked and a criminal. And an invitation from someone who is unjust is actually an invitation to kind of be complicit, And so just see the paradox as it turns. It is good that Jesus is righteous and a judge because when he invites us to himself, he invites us to righteousness. He is inviting us into a safe place. He is inviting us into the company of one who will not turn on us. And so here's how he invites us to come. He invites us to come, did you hear this? Like little children. He invites us to come to him as the one who has exclusive access to the Father. 
And then he invites us to come as those who are weary and yoked. Those three things, he invites us to come as little children, he invites us to come as those who know he is the only way to the Father, and he invites us to come as those who are weary and yoked. Let's start with the little children. He said, at that time, Jesus declared, this, this is, it's almost like we've been transported here from the Gospel of Matthew, and some of this will make sense to some of you. It's, almost, it's like we've been transported from the Gospel of Matthew to, to the Gospel of John. This sounds like John telling us of Jesus' high priestly prayer. And Matthew drops it right in here. After he offers this woe to these unrepentant, after he's, you know, again, John responded poorly because he, he had questions and doubts about, he was offended at who Jesus was. These people responded poorly by acting like impetuous children and being unrepentant. And so now he, he invites us to himself, first and foremost, to come to him as little children. And this profound priestly prayer. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. You have hidden these things from people who would consider themselves wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. I, uh, I get to kind of call back to um, even our own family as we were commissioned and... Uh, committed our own children to raise them in, in a home that would love Jesus. My father, who was a retired pastor, got to preach a sermon at that. It was really meaningful, and he kind of gave a list, a, list of, a list of ways that children get Jesus. And, and I remember two that were the most helpful. One is the helplessness of a child. When Jesus says, come to me as a child, not as those who are wise in their own eyes or understand things themselves, but in order that you would realize that God has actually hidden and opposed those things and has revealed himself evidently to what? Little children. And one of the things that little children have that, uh, that we don't typically is helplessness. They're completely helpless. Now, there's a, there's a, 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 different, a different tune here, right? The last time we talked about children last week was talking about children who were old enough to be impetuous, right? And we will describe those children, and now this will be painful. I will be like treading on sensitive territory for many of you in the room. We're speaking of children in those verses as children who have learned the word no, right? And some of you are like, oh, Lord, right? I know. I know. You could preach the gospel to us. Like, this is what it means to be an impetuous child. But there's a phase that precedes that, where children are utterly helpless, utterly and completely helpless, and they, by a miracle, and I believe a picture of the kingdom, don't even care about it. They don't even care. And they don't mind in any given moment, say, like, right, up, up. Uh, I mean, we... <laughs> I mean, we, we struggled as parents to help our, our daughters learn words because all they would have to do is go, uh, and we would go, you bet, and we'd run and go get it. <laughs> and they were utterly helpless, and they had no problem with it. Right? Hold me, feed me, carry me. The whole time. Friend, we get a picture in those little children of the helplessness that Jesus says ultimately his kingdom is visible to. In other words, 
you have to see your own helplessness to find real rest. You can't come to Jesus and just ask for help. You don't need help, friend. You are dead and lost. You need complete and utter salvation. And so this is a great barrier to many of you. Many of you, right now, even, you're here. You're here because you want to give it another go, right? You're here this morning because you intend, I'm going to... I'm going I'm to go, and then I'm going to do better, right? And even right now, like you're thinking, man, you're right. Thanks, pastor. I'm going to do so much better this week. I'm going to be so much better. Oh, man. Oh, and, and listen to what you're really saying. You're saying, I don't need Jesus. I just need another try. I don't really need Jesus. I just made a mistake. And friend, you are not a child yet. And you won't, you, again, you think you're wise, you think you've understood, and you have not seen. You are not, a, you're not a person with trouble who needs help. You are a person who is dead who needs resurrection. And when you begin to see that, oh, oh, you begin to be rested. Just for a moment, can you even admit that that desire to do better this week makes you weary? Maybe for some of you it doesn't because you're new at it. But for some of you who've tried several times, oh no, this, this, is, this, is the, this is the week I conquer that secret sin that no one knows about. This is the week that I, that I, finally, I finally grow in this, right? This is the week I finally am nice and kind, right? Like, fill in the blank. You're thinking, this is the week I do it, and friend, you're not a child yet. And God is pleased to keep your eyes veiled rather than to let you find rest in that weary and troublesome rat race. A child is helpless, and they don't even care. And the way to rest is admitting how helpless and needy you really are. Even the good things you've done, after all, you did probably for selfish and bad reasons. You don't need another try. You need a perfectly gentle Savior. Second thing that the children teach us here is they gamble on the love of the parent. I don't know the better way to say this, but they like presume on the love of a parent, they, they just know they are loved by a parent, and they are certain that they are loved so much that they don't care to interrupt anything, right? This may hit home for some of you. Like, they don't care if you were sleeping. They don't care. They don't care how comfortable things were for you. They don't care what you were doing. They don't care about any of that. All they know is if I go to this person, they love me enough, they're going to give me exactly what I need. They don't care. They presume. They gamble on it. They walk in it. They live. I don't know the right words. It's just like it's, they, they, are, they bet on it. They have rock-solid confidence in the love of a parent. Now, immediately, I know you can think of ex- examples where that didn't go right and this is missing, but, but imagine the ideal here of a child who knows, who absolutely knows in the middle of the night, <laughs> in hunger, in whatever, that they can go to the parent for help. And so, friend, I know the other, one of the other barriers that for many of you, you find in your own wisdom and understanding rather than in a childlike trust in Jesus, and I, and I mean this as, as powerfully and poignantly as I can possibly say it, you can't imagine that anyone would really love you. And when I say Jesus loves sinners, you're like, yes. But when I say Jesus loves you, something in you that's like, oh. And friend, you you haven't fully seen the kingdom. 
You're not a child quite yet. And perfect rest comes from knowing our helplessness, and perfect rest comes from when we see who God is and what he has demonstrated for us in Christ. That God so loved the world that he gave. He loved you so much that he gave his only son. That whoever would look to him, whoever would trust and believe in him, would have eternal life. It wouldn't perish. That they'd have abundant life. God demonstrates his love for you that while you were a mess, while you were dead in your sin, while you were as far off as you could imagine, that was the moment that he set his love upon you in Christ. And his love that brings us to life invites us to gamble, right? Again, picture that rock-solid confidence that a child has. I don't care that my parents are sleeping, right? I don't care. I don't, I don't think that. Think about it. Imagine running to the Father that way because of Christ. Like a child, right? The, the picture that many artists kind of give us is like if, uh, if two people run into the, into the throne room, in this case, right, imagine two people running into the White House, running up to the president, right? One of them, the Secret Service, is probably going to stop, tackle, or shoot, and the other one they will let go. And you know which one that was, one is? The child. A child. The child is the one who can run up to the king, to the throne, and no one stabs them, kills them. A child can run up to a, a, an important, powerful person, and everyone knows that's just what they're doing. Friend, so also, to an infinite degree, you and I are loved by God and invited into his presence. And seeing and finding rest means seeing that like a child like a little child. Second thing we see here is the picture of Christ. Now we'll see more of this for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, but just briefly here, we're going to do some theology, some Christology. Do you hear what we understand to be the mystery of the Trinity? The triune God, that God has revealed himself as a creating Father and the redeeming Son and the sustaining Spirit. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It was an act of grace that all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things. There's nothing that the Father has that he has not entrusted to the Son. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. They are of the same substance. So much so that it says that no one even knows the Son. No one has the power, majesty, or righteousness, or holiness to see the very nature of the Son of God. In that sense, the Son, Jesus Christ, is like God the Father, who, who we cannot see with unveiled faces. If we were to see his presence, we, he, right, he has to pass over us and show us his backside and his cloak, his very train, his clothing fills the temple because his very face would destroy us, it would, it would incinerate us, it would melt us. There aren't words for what would happen if we were to face God. And so that is also true of Jesus, because no one can actually face Jesus, who is co-eternal with God. And then no one knows the Father except the Son. Hear the powerful claim of Jesus that he is making. Be provoked by it. You cannot get to the Father. You cannot get to God but through Jesus. Every other religious structure or even world religion ultimately is trying to get you to do something to get to the Father. That is, get to the enlightenment, get to this special life, get to this special status. You can reach up to God. There's no way, like, and, and here's, here's the good news. The gospel that Christians hold tightly 
There's no way we could get to God. (laughs) But we don't need to. God has come to us. We don't have to get to Jesus. Jesus got to us. And when we see Jesus, it says that he chooses to reveal the Father to us. He chooses. Oh, oh man, some of you think that Jesus went to the cross and he was like mad about it. He's like, all right, fine. All right, I'll save all of those. But you, this, I'm doing this against. Do you hear? He chose. He chose. He said, I love this person. I want to show myself to him. I want to reveal myself to her. All power is given to Jesus. Lastly, not just that Jesus is the only way to know the Father, but also the last thing is that we are yoked, we are weary, and we are yoked. I want to illustrate a point here that I think is found here, and there's some good resources to it, but here's my contention to you, wherever you are, right now, remember when I asked you how your soul is and if you're weary and tired, here's the truth, you are weary and tired in your soul because you have yoked your life with something other than Jesus. It is sad, and yet, I believe here, gloriously true, that we are weary because we have labored and been yoked to something other than Jesus. And everything other than Jesus, this passage contends, and I believe I can, I can affirm with my own painful experience, every weariness and sorrow comes from resting and trusting in something other than Jesus. Every other thing will let you down. Now, this isn't new for us. I won't belabor this point. This, this was the question that started this chapter, right? Are you the one, Jesus? And I talked about how we even, like we look for the one. We, we think we've found the one. Everyone's looking for the one, whether they think so or not. Even we saw in sync, right? Even the cheesiest love song, who, who aren't about Jesus, are, are about something that someone believes they have found and is the one. And yet even that, right? I know you, some newlyweds or some giddy people, some young couples, you just started dating, and this is since terrible, but even that person will let you down. And Jesus ultimately says that we are restless in two ways. Did you hear them? Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So what is he implying there? One, that we're restless. He says it the second way. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And what does he say again? I will give you, you'll find rest for your souls. Two, that we're restless. So the one way that we're restless is the first one there. Did you hear that? We labor and are heavy laden. We are weary and heavy laden. And the second source of restlessness is that we are yoked. And it's important to notice here, just like that question about the one, he's not saying like, uh, you know, as John was asking, are you the one or is there no one? The passage seems to imply that whether or not you find Jesus to be your source of rest doesn't free you from the certainty that you are certainly looking for something else for rest. And whether you find rest in the yoke of Jesus doesn't free you from the fact that you are certainly yoked to something. And friend, lean into that this morning. Why are you weary? Why are you weary? I can only tell you about my own weariness, right? It's, it's multifaceted. Um, my weariness comes from a few different places, right? I'm usually tired because I'm doing, and I'm weary, trying to do too much. Well, what's under that? 
I really, really, there's two different things. I really want to win and impress people. And two, I really hate chaos. And rather than receiving and resting in all the approval that God the Father gives me in Jesus, and rather than trusting in that he's in control and has power over, remember all things, I can't sleep because I need I need to win. I need to succeed. I need, right, I, I need to have things under control. And friend, you can imagine how little sleep I get when I'm doing that. Now, I don't know what yours is, but I'll ask it again. Why are you weary? Where are you trying to overachieve? Where are you chasing something that always leaves you more tired than when you started? Lean into it. Christ has become all those things we long for. All those things we're wearying ourselves to pursue. Christ has given to us freely. Do you overcommit? Is it because you're trying to prove yourself? Because you're trying to impress? Is it because you're trying to compensate for something awful that happened to you? Why are you weary? You're weary and tired in your soul because you have yoked yourself to something other than Jesus. That's why you're weary. The second thing, he assumes that we're restless and that he also assumes that we're yoked. You will be yoked to something. Up to this point, maybe I've asked it in gentle ways. Why are you weary? But here's the thing. This is where you have to hear Jesus like, in, full, in full force. He says, you're yoked to something. And here's the thing you know what that is. You may not be able to put it to words, but everyone around you knows it. Everyone around you feels it. Now, the yoke language here is not familiar to us, right? I think the only time anyone of us would have seen a yoke is when we go to a restaurant that's like Western-themed, right? It could be wood, leather, right? But it essentially fastens a beast of burden, oxen, horse, mules, donkeys, you name it, to something that they're pulling, a plow, a wagon, right? And so the powerful picture here is that, and, and, this, and this is the paradox, is that you are yoked to something. He doesn't say you're not yoked and you should take on my yoke. He's saying take my yoke because he knows that we have taken our yoke. The emphasis here taking my yoke. Take on the, the thing that I'm offering to you. You're already living for something. You can't turn it off. You already hunger and thirst after something. You can't stop it. How about you take on what I offer? And here's the profound paradox that freedom only comes from submission to Jesus. Freedom only comes from submission to Jesus. True freedom, true rest comes from being truly yoked to Jesus alone. Because what he asks of you is not like anything else in existence. What he asks of you in this invitation to a yoke is nothing like anything you've ever heard. Every other yoke that you and I are pulling along in our own lives is demanding something of us that wearies us, that doesn't satisfy It doesn't ultimately get us what we want. And so we try again the next day. 
And yet Christ alone is the one who offers this yoke, and his yoke invites us to weird things. Like, again, just think about what he's asking you to do. Right? Because if I was like, hey, I need you to do me a favor. Right? I need you to shovel snow. Actually, I may need you to do that. That's, that's a real thing, right? But part of you is like, ooh, that, oh, that makes me tired to think about it, right? I need you to help me. Do me a favor. I need you to, like, pick up the slack in this area, right? Listen to what Jesus is asking. It just, it'll blow your mind. For some of you, it will offend you. He's saying, hey, I need to ask you to favor. Do me a favor. I need you to rest. I have this thing that I want you to do. And for many of you, this is the Lord's Day. You're celebrating this beautiful Sabbath promise fulfilled for us in Christ. And he's asking you a favor. He's saying, will you do me a favor? Nothing. All the things you wanted to do to prove yourself, to impress God, he says, nope. Do do something for me. Do nothing. Do nothing. Completely and totally rest in me. That's my yoke. That's what it's like to be yoked to Jesus. That's the invitation we are offered. Freedom only comes from submission to Jesus. What a paradox it is. I know other things and people and and, and operations you've submitted to have betrayed you and let you down, and so this, this idea sounds terrible. But friend, do you see Jesus? Do you see the paradox as Jesus as the perfect judge and Jesus as perfectly gentle? Look how he words it at the very end there. He says, accept the gift of Jesus. Did you hear the language of rest? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will, listen to the language, give you rest. Do you hear it? It's a gift. But then, take my yoke upon me, learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will, first one, give. Next one, find. And what Jesus offers is a gift that we received and a treasure that we stumbled upon. He's a gift and a treasure. He's a gift and a reward. This is what God gives us in Christ. This is the beauty. And I love this because there is no other place in all of the Gospels or all of the Bible that describes Jesus this way. The language of heart, right? The language of heart is, is the language of your inner being. It's not, right, these, these people aren't talking about like what a cardiologist would think a heart is, right? These people are talking about your inner motivation, your inner self, what is essentially and perfectly true about you. That's your heart, right? That's what he said, my heart's desire, right? All the language of the Psalms and even in here, the heart. And what does it say that Jesus is ultimately? He is gentle and lowly. Next chapter, we're going to find out how gentle he is. The bruised reed he will not break. The smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He is gentle and ultimately in his heart. When he invites you to submit to him, he is inviting you to submit to his gentleness and his lowliness. His meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Remember, we saw this in the Beatitudes. Meekness is power that's under control. You know that. After all, it's, it, it doesn't take a whole lot of power to, to respond in anger and have a temper tantrum. It takes a whole lot of power to not do that. That's meekness. Christ, who could and should have wiped us off the planet, did what? Restrained and channeled his power in mercy to us. He's meek, and then he's humble. There is no one who has ever lowered themselves more in all of existence than Jesus. There is no one, I mean, man, this is something, there is no one who has traveled further to tell you how much he loves you than Jesus, who has crossed infinity, who has crossed the chasm of our sin, who has crossed existence that separates us from God and humanity, has crossed all of those things. That's how low 
he has stooped to you and to me so that you would see the paradox of his perfect judgment and his perfect gentleness, the gift that he offers and the reward that he is. Friend, rest is not a place. Rest is not a VRBO. It's not a vacation. Rest is a person. And I want you to go to him because until you see the justice of God, then you will never, ever rest. And you find out that God is just and good. Some of you know this, right? Up until you heard about Jesus, you just felt judged all the time. And the thought that Christ, who is the judge, was judged in our place, sets us free. Jesus is the perfect judge. Jesus has perfectly been judged in our place. He is the perfectly just, and he perfectly justifies the ungodly. And there is a rest from knowing that God is judge because you know how gentle he is to his own. If you fear another judge, you're always restless. But when you know Christ, who is the judge, who entered into judgment for us, things are different. I'll end with this idea. There's this picture of judgment day. Did you hear that? I know from some of you are like, oh, day of judgment, that sounds terrible. And I want to propose to you the paradox that is the invitation to comfort in Christ. I want to take seriously the words of Christ here. If you're in this room, if you're in this room and, and have not helplessly looked to Christ for all the mercy that God offers, then friend, judgment day is coming. And it is the worst possible thing you can imagine. But my friend, if you are in this room and you, like a child, have helplessly looked to Christ for hope, judgment day has come and gone. You have nothing to fear because all the sins of your past, present, and future have been fully and righteously paid for at the cross. Friend, judgment day is coming for those apart from Christ, but for those of us in Christ, judgment day is over. It's already happened, and all we get to do now is what? Rest in the gentle, welcoming, humble love of the Savior. Because, friend, judgment day has come, and grace has come in Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection. Picture it, if you will. No one was more furious at sin than God was at the cross. No one took sin more seriously. I mean, I mean, you think you're mad about the sin of the world. You think you're mad about the awful things that have happened. You haven't sent your only begotten son. No one took sin more seriously than God did at the cross. And at the same time, no one took gentleness. No one took mercy and grace more seriously than God did at the cross. Nowhere is God more ruthless toward evil and justice and sin than at the cross. And nowhere is he more gentle to sinners in welcoming them at the cross and the empty grave. Oh, friend, he's a judge, but he's so gentle for his own. Judgment day has come and gone for us. And all that is left for us as we look to Christ is to experience rest. Let's look to him for that right now. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy towards me. Oh, thank you for even meeting me in my own restlessness. I pray that you would even now begin to work through this invitation to find rest to all of us in this room. I pray that in our own words we would confess our own weariness, um, that in our own words even this morning we would look to you and admit how restless we are.
how discontent we are, how hurt we are, how disappointed we are. I pray we would look to you as a judge and know that you are righteous. We can come to you for vindication. You will not oppress. You will not play favorites. And yet at the same time, we know that if you, if you pronounce judgment on the sinful, then none of us will stand. And so also, Lord, would you allow us to come to you this morning as the gentle Savior who lowered himself, lower than any of us could imagine, so that we could see and experience your welcome. Might we look to you and find that. Might we find that gentleness and rest is not a place, an aspiration, or an accomplishment. It's a person. And our affirmation and promise of rest, a better rest, a good and better rest than any rest that anyone has ever known can be found in Jesus. Might we come to you now with our weariness, our weariness in sin, our weariness and brokenness, our weariness of wounds, our weariness of frailty and failure. Might we confess all these weaknesses to you and find comfort and joy and rest. In Jesus' name, amen.